Hello and welcome to the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host. And today we have a great guest for you. But first, guys, if you like the episode, if you got some value out of it, please make sure to share, like, comment, all those great things on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you happen to find our podcast. We really appreciate the shares and getting this out to more and more people. We don't have advertisers or any really sponsors of the podcast. We just ask that you share it and spread good news throughout the construction industry. And to introduce our guest today is Christopher Doyle. Chris, he's an entrepreneur and business leader with extensive hands-on construction industry experience and a proven record of launching successful startups. He's the co-founder, president, and CEO of Build, which is a disruptive payment solution for the construction industry that helps contractors and suppliers grow their business with less hassle and risk. Recognizing some of the cash flow hurdles contractors face when purchasing materials, Doyle launched Build to make traditional Wall Street working capital accessible to these small business owners. And I am excited to get into payments and all things contracts related to construction. So welcome, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dylan. Excited to, to be on and, and chat today. Now, I'd like to kind of ask and go back to a little bit before you started Build. And really, how did you get your start within the construction industry? Yeah, so I, I mean, really when I was 16 years old, uh, I did a job. And so a couple of my buddies were were uh, framing houses. So it ended up being like the best side job ever when you're 16. It, it paid cash every week. Uh, it You got a tan. Uh, you got a great workout. Uh, <laughs> So it was a great, you know, summer job. I was in high school and in college, uh, but that was like full on labor, you know, where your um, worth was, can you carry two or three four by eight sheets of plywood from the front of the house to the back? Um, and uh, you're, you know, the like hierarchy of the framing crew, you, you know, it was like a, a thing. So I like moved my way up to almost to like the sawman, but um I had a couple of days of that and messed some things up. So I was demoted back. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was my start. And you know, it's, it's good to have like really just that physical experience of what's it like arriving on the job site? What's it like to have to broom a house out? What's it like to chat with delivery people that get all upset over different things? Um, how concrete trucks come and go, just all these little things that as you progress in your career in construction, you just get further and further away from. But if you have that experience in the early days, which you'll never go back, you're never able to go back to, it's just so valuable for a you know, 20, 30 year career in, in the same industry. Yeah, I feel that, you know, so I was an engineer going through school and came out and kind of made my way to construction. And through that process, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of roofing, done a lot of manual labor, dug a lot of ditches. And uh, that really is what pushed me through engineering school. So I didn't have to dig ditches anymore. But that experience- Dig ditches, man. That's, that's tough work right there. <laughs> yeah, without, without a ditch witch, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you know, that labor experience teaches us so much. And I think through that too, like you'd mentioned, 
how were your kind of personal and communication skills developed uh, being on a job site and doing that type of work where you had to interact with, you know, a lot of different people? Yeah. You know, I, one thing is, is avoiding a lot of the cliches in the industry. It's like, you know how to talk to someone, you know how to refer to the structure and how changes work and um, like what's acceptable and not acceptable, uh, both from like the quality of, of the build, um, but also just like what you, what you put up with and don't put up with from external folks, whether it's the customer, whether it's an inspector and just knowing what's like right and wrong in that way. Um, I, I think that's probably the most valuable and just, it's kind of like this no BS approach. Like, no, that's unreasonable to do that. And no, we're not going to do that. Even as uh, like contracts, right? Like our scope is to do this. Well, now this has to change and it's minor, but oh, by the way, it's, it's actually kind of a pain in the ass. And I know what it means now to have to move this closet door over, you know, it's like, that's not trivial. And it's not in scope and it's not okay to ask us to do as a favor because it's going to be a day and a half for the work. Um, so yeah, I think it, it helped a tremendous amount. Just get that uh, maturity and confidence in, in saying no or saying like not so fast kind of approach, but also, you know, getting that lingo down. It's, it's interesting. Um, especially now look, I'm finance technology construction, like, it seems a little white collar. So when I'm talking to contractors, having that lingo, like in five minutes can build the credibility that says, hey, I know what I'm talking about on a job site. Um, I'm not someone that just sits behind a desk and, and dreams about technology stuff all day, but really like hands-on experience. That's a really good point. And I've seen more and more, you know, now that I'm in this space too, this construction kind of tech ish space and go to more of these types of conferences that there seems to be people that come into construction that have no roots or foundation within the industry. And I guess kind of give your take on what you've seen through the industry and maybe some that have come in that <laughs> don't know what they're uh, really getting into. You know, they're, they're yeah. an outsider coming into construction and why maybe those types of companies have, have either done well or, um, maybe taking a step back, uh, through the industry, you know, maybe they're intense, right. But, um, it just doesn't quite work in some cases. Yeah. I, so I would, I would probably answer that in two very distinct, uh, one, one being the marketing side and knowing and understanding your customer. Uh, the other being what the actual problems are and understanding that pain point. Um, so from a marketing standpoint, I, look, I see a ton of misses out there uh, where um, outside, we'll call it outsiders, right? We'll, we'll say construction outsiders, trying to penetrate that market and, and like resonating with the customer. You're just like, that's a miss. Like you have no idea what it's like to do this. And you're using this like kind of cliche images and, and lingo that is wrong. Um, Construction has this like blue collar kind of cachet to it from outsiders of like, you're doing this and this, you know, one of my least favorite terms ever, actually don't, two, two chucks in a truck like this, like, I absolutely hate when people say that. Um, but from an outsider perspective, you always get that kind of rhetoric. Um, so I think the marketing is the biggest thing. 
to have, and I am, uh, you should talk to the team internally. Uh, I am extremely adamant about having the right messaging to our customers that doesn't, um, number one, that like enables them, makes them feel empowered, makes them feel like they're entrepreneurs, right? They're not just, I started my own crew, you know, I, I left and started my own crew and now I'm just doing it on my own for a paycheck. They are business entrepreneurs in their own right and they want to grow their business and they have aspirations. So really uh, resonating with them, uh, I think is, is the number one thing that I see as a miss. Um, the other is just understanding the, the real pain points. Um, you know, what, what we do at build is a, you know, it's a cash flow pain point. Right. And, um, if you've, we do only commercial construction. So if you've done, um, if you worked in commercial construction, it's so well known, right. This pain point. Um, but when I talk to investors and capital providers and we're trying to explain it, um, just them even understanding the real problems and, and how the solutions could work. Uh, it's like, well, wait, <laughs> actually here are some other nuances that you have to keep in consideration. Um, that's really how our business um, has, has um, done well is that we actually know what the pain points are and feel like we can um, create a solution with so many different things in mind one being like the relationship, right? Relationship and construction is absolutely everything. So all these, you know, from a lending standpoint, at least, uh, I don't, don't want to step too far ahead and on the lending side, but there's all these legalese that have to happen and those could be very disruptive to relationships. So those are, those are the types of things that we manage very closely to make sure not only does it not negatively impact the relationship, but it actually has the other effect where it's a positive impact on the relationship. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and that goes for any industry, like you, you just gotta know, and that doesn't mean you have to sweep floors in construction to understand the industry, but you gotta have that hands-on or surround yourself with people that have that hands-on or you're just, gonna, you're just gonna be a miss. And how do you, like, how do you really love your customer and have a passion for your customer if you don't know your customer? Right. And so that's something we try and instill in the business. It's like when our customers call, it's like, this isn't, oh, this guy's calling again. No, everyone at our company is like excited, right? They're like, how can I help you? How can we help your business? We're excited about this. Um, and to me, it's just, it's all about knowing the customer. And ultimately, I mean, and this is kind of a, a two-fold question, but why did you choose to solve a problem within construction? I mean, what, what brought you to, to build? I mean, there's a lot of you know, financial things out there. There's a lot of other um, problems in the world, but why did you choose to solve problems within the construction industry? Yeah, so I, I've started two, uh, two construction businesses. One is a construction technology company called, called Site Capture that still operates. It's been a business about eight years. Um, pretty popular in the solar market and and then now more recently build, which is my my primary focus now and uh, I think in both instances it as a like an entrepreneur spirit, you know you're just like constantly assessing problems that you come up with and you're just like, oh man, this would here's a solution like you should, why does this not exist 
And then it's those that you feel the most passionate about both in the pain point and the customer that you, they usually take some action on because you have more confidence in it too. Right. And so the first time around I was so in that degree and that pain point at the time where it was like, I couldn't stop myself from doing it. Uh, it was like, this is such a problem and I have a solution. All it takes now is capital. So I'll just go get some capital. It sounds easy, right? I'll just go get some capital, build the product, and then that'll be that. And, it, and in that case, it worked out just that way. Uh, build was a little bit different uh, where the problem was bigger from a kind of like a macro standpoint. It's like $1.3 trillion industry known problem. This is like big idea problem and no one is solving it. Nobody's trying to solve it. Um, and so that one was a little different, um, because you'd have an idea, but you're going like, am I about to get clubbed in the head? You know, like, why is no one trying to solve this? It's such a big problem. It's such a big market. The, the demand is there. I, yeah. You feel like you're about to get, you're walking into a cave about to get clubbed in the back of the head. <laughs> so, uh, it took a, a decent amount of diligence. You know, part of that was when we started build, we had actually acquired another firm that had been doing um, some similar um, financing in the construction space. So getting that data was super helpful. Um, also just having the partnership of our investors who I had previously worked on in another startup that I did not start, but worked at um, and their comfort level with me and, and, and the co-founder Jesse Weisberg is what, is what really drove it. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do it without, without that. Um, so I, you know, when you, I think when anyone starts a business, it's always, some of it's just like luck and timing. Cause if you reverse it in your mind, you're going, you know, if this wouldn't have happened, like the whole company would have never happened. Right. And maybe it would have been something else. Um, but you know, I guess some of it is just kind of luck and timing. Maybe not luck. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. <laughs> right. Right. You're still fairly early in the, the journey. And I mean, you've talked a lot about pain points and trying to, to solve them for Bill in particular doing payments. Was this something that you had experienced or was it just something that you saw and attacked? Kind of what was that maybe catalyst for you um, to go in on this? Yeah, it's definitely something I'd experienced. Um, so uh, let me give a quick overview on like just what Build is too. So what we do, well, let me describe the problem, I think, first uh, for, for listeners that uh, may not be as familiar. But in commercial construction, if you're an electrician and you're awarded a $200,000, $300,000 project, um, let's say you're probably on that project for six months. You, are, you have to buy your material up front, install it, and then on the 25th of every month, have your payout to the general contractor. But you've bought that material ahead of time. Normally you get terms, so it's not like you had to put cash up front, but a good portion of the market, they, they don't get terms. They're, they're too small or they're too new. So that makes the problem even worse. Um, but you buy the material, you put in your pay app, and from that point forward, um, which you're already on day like 20 or 30 from having to buy the material, you have another you know 60, sometimes 90 days before you actually get that cash. Well, on a recurring spend standpoint, now all of a sudden on your $300,000 project, you're 60 to $80,000 in the hole. 
right? And that's one project. Um, the, the supply chain financing and construction is just totally broken. It's very slow. Um, and the, the, those that get the short end of the stick are the contractors all day long. So what we do is we provide a product that allows our customers to purchase their material through us. So we actually buy the material and resell it to the, to the contractor and we provide 120 day terms to the contractor. Now we do this in partnership with the suppliers. So we're not competing with them. In fact, they love it because they get paid upfront cash. So oftentimes, well, almost every time they get a cash discount um, on the product as well, which saves our customers some money. Uh, and then we effectively charge like a simple interest during while the balance is outstanding, right? Um, which um, from a comparison of the actual project cost is really, really minor. So small. So, you know, our pitch is, look, uh, add, you know, one, one and a half percent to your bid and never worry about your ability to purchase materials again. Right. That, you know, really that simple. So, um, no, that's, the, that's the product. And, um, we really identified that by, in my uh, previous role, I mentioned worked at a startup doing consumer finance in the construction space. So this is like a homeowner that wants to do an improvement on their house. Um, they have a contractor that said, you know, we're going to do, this was mostly in solar. So I'm going to do a $30,000 solar system on the home. We would provide that financing to the, to the, um, to the consumer. Well, the contractor is selling it. Um, they're like, Hey, I need like 10 of that $30,000 now. Cause I got to buy material. I got to do this. I can do that. And solar's grown rapidly in the last five years. So my time at this is dividend finance was part of that. And it wasn't just dividend growing rapidly. All of our installers were growing rapid, rapidly. So this issue of needing to buy up front, install, and then get paid in this space was pretty narrow, two to three weeks, but it's still a major problem because you're growing so quickly, right? You're just always digging yourself this big, big hole. It sounds great from an accounting standpoint. It looks great the cash, right? Where's the cash? And if you're a small company, you just can't access unlimited debt. So we would, um, at this company, we would provide little mini products to give them access to the funds earlier. And uh, they needed it more and more. And then we realized that our product from the consumer side was, it's not that it was being misused. It's like, it's two separate problems. Financing for the consumer versus like cash flow to the contractor. We need a, a specific product for the cash flow of the contractor. And it really should be their obligation, not anything to do with the, the consumer. Um, so yeah, this is what, what had really started it. And um, as same investor I'd mentioned before. So we identified the problem and said, hey, uh, we think we can do something about this. And uh, you know, went on from there. Nice, I love that where you actually you saw a problem, you experienced it, you know, thoroughly, and it wasn't a kind of knee jerk reaction into something, right? It's, yeah. it's thought through, it's well planned out, it's seen, and you know, it's a unique product for um, the contractors. Now, it, oh, go and ahead. I, I, yeah, you know, I just wanted to mention too, because construction has a, a, um, 
reputation of being, you know, low technology, uh, right? And, and it is, uh, definitely is. Uh, and you see a lot of these emerging construction technology firms that have come in. It's really innovating, right? To go into an industry like that and say, we're going to affect change because it, it is, the industry in general has been slower to adopt. But now what you're seeing is from the top down, the largest GCs in the country aren't just using technology. They're like blowing it out of the water, right? With this kind of like BIM software type stuff and the adoption of like electronic payment systems and contracting and Procore has been huge in this kind of stuff. And I mean, there's a number of other companies, but um, what is nice to see over the last say five years is it's, it seems like it's become a lot less intimidating uh, for new players to jump in and say, I'm going to provide this technology product and I'm going to sell it and people are going to adopt it. And that's what's going to make the industry as a whole just so much more efficient. And it's really the like pro cores of the world that like led this and the texturas and that kind of thing that led this years ago that have, have paved a way for a lot of us now that can come in with smaller like bite-sized products that so that solve like either specific needs or you know have aspirations for solving like broader problems and maybe you're really like riding the 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 pigtails of of uh of a pro core or something like that um so i think that's been really great to see in the in the industry yeah definitely i mean pro core is a big one plan grids another you know mm -hmm. putting ipads in the hands of everybody on the job site and getting rid of uh, paper documents, you know, that was, I think, really the first big step is to get rid of the rolling uh, paper table, drafting table yeah. on the job site and putting an iPad, you know, in the foreman's hand. And with yeah, that, I mean, I remember like printing out like over a foot tall specifications and approved specs. Yeah, there's no control F for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you actually had to know your divisions and uh, where, yeah, yeah, where to look for everything. And I mean, in construction tech, I think the the biggest thing too is is just pure adoption. Um, you know, there's a lot of great technology out there. It's just how quickly are firms adopting it, and kind of what route are they taking in adopting it? You know, you still have mm -hmm. guys yeah. that that love their paper uh, and few, those are getting fewer and fewer. Mm -hmm. And just as the generations change, as guys retire, you're seeing more of that, that shift through construction. Um, I think it's coming and, you know, especially in with Corona and everything that we've had to do with like mobile payments or touchless deliveries and everything else that's been um, pretty innovative in, in how to look at job sites and going more virtual and digital uh, through, you know, this challenging time really for construction and being on job sites. Um, I think we'll see some more come of it in working, you know, more with the computer than yeah. uh, just, just the phone and, <laughs> and uh, you know, a tape measure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think the, um, one of the big opportunities right now um, is contracts. So, um, yeah, and this is across the full spectrum. Commercial construction is a little different. I mean, they have their process, and that's still a bit archaic. You have like standard T's and C's, and then a scope, 
the scope's generally pulled from the specs and the proposal and you kind of like massage that together. And a lot of this is, is kind of standard, but um, you know, your, your small tenant improvements, your uh, homeowner uh, contracts, like I'm just gonna go on a limb and say 30% of those projects have no contract at all. Uh, it's, it's a verbal, this is what it costs. And so when I'm coaching the team, cause we actually do look at the project and the contract. Um, uh, and we have like an integration with Procore that, um, that makes that a lot easier. So that the, the customer doesn't have to do a whole lot or really anything. Um, but some of the people without construction experience, um, I have to instill with them to say, look, uh, this is a, $200,000 project. Are you saying that you would do something like that without a contract or even a $40,000? Like you would do it without anything that says this is the job. And it's funny because I'm always using that as an example and put in like, of course you have to have this. We just did a tenant improvement <laughs> in our office and I use a contractor that I've used for the last uh, five to seven years. We didn't have a contract. <laughs> He he wrote it up just kind of with me there and I didn't even realize it until we were midway through and I was like, I I can't believe I did this and didn't put something in writing, you know, just in case like something went sideways and we had a disagreement. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of disagreements in scope and price and what was supposed to be there or not. And I think contracts solve a lot of, a lot of those and any, you know, products that can help increase the adoption of, of mutual agreement and like this is this is what we've decided to do uh is a really big opportunity in the industry right now probably less on the commercial side more on some of these other things on you know smaller projects yeah and i mean there is a big kind of divide there your your typical residential contractor probably doesn't really know what a spec book looks like um they haven't gone through an aia contract ever yeah. Um, you know, that's a, and so with that, I mean, the paperwork to do commercial is far greater, yeah. um, than anything you would deal with in residential. So there is a, I think there's a pretty big gap there <laughs> between, between the two and just, you know, what you do and, you know, it's, you think of, and I guess this is that, that term for like the really residential market where it's, you know, a guy has got a crew and he's just kind of your local handyman, maybe somewhat of a general contractor in your local neighborhood. And you know, they just do residential, right? You maybe need an addition, you maybe need a little thing here or there. And that's kind of yep. the niche that they fill, um, you know, outside of like the big home builders, or maybe they do, you know, three homes a year type of thing. Right. So right. That market is significantly different and not talking like the Pulte's or like the big home builders <laughs> in the country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and then the, you go to like all your commercial stuff. And I mean, I think, so contracts are one thing that I've been kind of hammering on for a long time in for, and let's just talk specifically commercial because I think there's there's a lot more things that need to be done in the residential market to bring residential contractors as a whole together because you it's typically you know like a five man crew in residential there's yep. way more of them than are in commercial so to bring that all together takes a different <laughs> governing body than like AIA really is the the one that holds most of all the contracts for commercial so that's let's tackle that one in particular. Yeah. 
Um, for this, and it's kind of something that I've been talking on for a while is AIA is the standard contract that everybody, you know, does that's for the architect and the owner. And then that falls over to the, the GC side and whoever that might be. And typically those contracts are also done for any like design build, anything like that. We're using AIA templates to yep. make that happen where I see some of this falling through and with contracts in particular is not everybody is fully aware of what is in those contracts yep. <laughs> and what the required deliverables are. I mean, BIM is like the whole big black box of <laughs> what's actually required that nobody does. And then payment terms and other things like that, or markup percentages. Um, those are kind of the big ones up front, but I guess the, the real question in this is, where do you see contracts needing to head and what's going to be that mechanism to basically create a better, more, I won't say enforceable because we have a lot of litigation and construction as it is, yeah. but yeah, yeah. what's that kind of mutual beneficial, everybody agrees. We as an industry kind of know what the standard terms and conditions are within these contracts. So we have, really, I think just a little more transparency through this. So everybody can ultimately agree, which means lawyers stay out of it and everybody just, you know, does what they need to do. How do you see that kind of evolution in contracts happening? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the issue is that if you look at the, the hierarchy, right, the project owner, property owner to GC and then GC to sub, Construction has always been so competitive um, that it, it definitely relationship driven, but also very, I mean, it's your classic go get three bids, right? You know, do you go get three bids on the monitors you buy? Do you go get three bids on X, Y, but it's so common to, to like check a price um, in commercial, you know, as a subcontractor, probably looking at about, anywhere from five to 10 competitors on every single project. So when you roll that in, so there's a huge price component of this and the competitiveness, then you get to the contract. Like price is what, what drives most of it. I mean, it's definitely relationship, reputation, things like that. And then it's like, okay, combine that with price. And as a GC, I'm gonna decide what sub I wanna use. The contract's like table stakes. It's like, oh, and you have to you have to agree to our contract. Like that's not even that's not even in consideration. If you're not going to agree to these things, then you're out. And guess what? I've got eight other contractors. If you don't like it, so that's a problem. Well, it's it's um, it's a problem for the sub, uh, but like other problems, like the the cash flow, it all rolls down to the sub. So what are things you can do to protect yourself? It's, it's like really just like chip away at it, right? Like take the worst things, chip away at it with your, with your general contractor. So you're normally doing lots of projects with your, call it your Harvey Clear, your Beck, your whatever the GC. It's not your first rodeo. Your first one, take it as it is, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, you, you can't. You, you got your first project, great general contractor. You want to do more, do a fantastic job, take it as it is. Second one, chip away. Well, you know, this one, this, this thing, I, I really can't get behind change order percentage, stuff like that. Um, and I don't even want to paint this as the GC being the bad guy. I mean, it's, they're in the same position. 
right? Especially with the large facility owners that work with dozens of GCs are like, no, take it or leave it. And, and a general contractor is a very, you know, very low asset uh, kind of business, right? They have a lot of throughput on revenue, but you know, it doesn't take a lot of assets to, to build a project. The subs really are the ones that have the assets that come in, the trucks, the manpower, you know, um, and so they can't, um, they can't take on a whole lot of risk. They really can't. And, uh, that has to be passed on to the subs and that's exactly what they do. Yeah. I've, I've seen that through countless projects where, you know, a great team of subs can really make or break a project, um, and communication kind of through that. Um, you know, those are guys <laughs> doing the actual work. And really helping the, the subs, you know, we've talked about payment terms. We've talked a little bit about contracts. What are some of the other sticking points, I guess, that you see within the contracts that subs typically need to address? Uh, uh, well, I think you hit on one of the more obvious ones is change orders. That, that can be a real tough one. Um, because you can get on a project, $100,000 project, and it can turn into a $200,000, $300,000 project. Um, some, whether a change or just a scope ad, right? It's like, oh, we ended up deciding this to be part of your scope. I need a change order. And uh, depending on the, you know, if it's a public project or what have you, where you have to provide this like breakdown of labor and cost and margin, look, the margin put on, on bids is like 30 to 40 to 50%, right? From a direct cost. So direct labor, direct uh, material. Then you have to add in your overhead, which is generally, and it dep totally depends on, on your trade, but generally you're talking 20 to 25%, maybe even 30%. And then call margin 10%, maybe 15%. It never ends up being 15% at, in, in the reality, but you got some contingency in there, right? And so this concept that you have a change order with uh, direct cost plus 7% is like a joke, right? And, and you, you may agree to it, but you can get really locked in on something where you're going, uh, I'm not, I can't do this work at 7% markup. Like I have other work, I've got to make money. Um, so that's a big one. And what, what's interesting is like you, Project owners drive that a lot of times, right? Because they don't want the infamous like big fat change order marked up and I don't have another choice because the sub is locked in. Um, but that's not, that's not reality. So I think that's like an injustice in the construction world right now. Um, I don't necessarily know a great way to solve it, but um, that's definitely low hanging fruit for a sub to say, Hey, you know, maybe you max out your, your amount there, like anything over $10,000, you know, must be bid out or some other way to price it. But, you know, to, to be forced to do work at a 7% margin is just a, a no go. Um, you know, the paid when paid paid, if paid is like the other big tragedy. <laughs> um, and you know, there's not a great solution for that either, other than just bonding, uh, because, you know, if, if you're, you hear it all the time, like this is how people go out of business is they're on a project. They, um, they get extended and, um, and project shuts down and, um, 
you know, as a sub, and I felt this so many times as a subcontractor, you are on a project, you haven't been paid in two months. And the superintendent is like, you know, get out here, finish working. You're going, no, I, you know, I can't. Then you're at this crossroads of um, really ruining a relationship because the sub needs the work to continue. And the GC oftentimes has no control. They're like, look, I can't yet bank issue, owner issue, whatever administrative issue. Um, so you just keep on going, right? In retrospect, you're going, why did I work for four months without getting paid? And then project goes out. Um, you go back to the contractor, pay if paid. GC has no other assets to fund, you know, the, the four months of construction. And there, there it goes, you know, half the subs on the project go out of business. Which is really a, it's such a tragedy that it's really comes down to a lot of payment terms. You know, there's, there's guys that do tremendous work, you know, they did everything that they were supposed to, and it comes down to, they weren't ultimately paid for what they were going to do, you know, whether the owner didn't pay or there's a, you know, some argument or discrepancy versus, you know, pay apps versus percent complete or whatever. Yeah. And that, you know, okay. So you submit on the 25th, we reviewed it, you know, we didn't like this or we were okay with that. Um, to, you know, then that gets extended out to the next 25th and before you know it, you know, and then they got 30 days from the time you agree. So then it's, you know, two, three months later to, to get paid. And, um, I'm seeing some technology come through with percent complete verification, um, mm -hmm. doing, you know, walkthroughs and scans to kind of automatically look at percent complete. And while that's all well and good, unless they start tying it to a pay table and like that automatically gets done and, you know, everyone just agrees to go with it. Um, I don't know how, I can see it being beneficial, but I think that's going to be the ultimate benefit where that, you know, it triggers payments, the owner has money in a fund and it, it just goes through. Um, yeah. I don't know what you're seeing on that, that side of the table. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's like what we mentioned before on the, the top down technology approach where uh, you do see a lot of these products coming out uh, that are being marketed to the project owners and general contractors that solve these pain points. Uh, but it is a fundamental shift and adoption. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a matter of just time really on uh, the more progressive adopting. There's a lot of players here though, right? You've got your, your bank, you've got oftentimes, you know, the title company that's holding the escrow, you've got the, um, the property owner, you've got the general contractor and these other, either a construction manager, architect engineer, these other folks. And it's a lot of a, a players that have to adopt and buy into a system. Um, and I, I don't even know whose real choice that is because it could be the property owner, but it could just be the bank too. It says, no, you know, if we're going to finance construction, like this is how we're going to play ball here. But what does the bank care about the sub? You know, I mean, I guess they do. They definitely have some interest, but they're, they're not um, incentivized by solving the subs problem. So it is a lot of stakeholders and it's, it's tough to dream up the solutions because you in the, if you have experience in construction, you're kind of thinking of all the obstacles that are going to be ahead of you to, to really try and solve it because it's not that hard if you were just to whiteboard it, but these obstacles come up and you go, well, how the heck is this going to work? Um, I, I was going to say though, um, you know, 
from an advice to a subcontractor because you're dealt with a lot of, we'll call it crap here, right? We've been talking about a few things, right? Payments, contracts, things like this. Um, and you are the, the kind of bottom level of, of the chain, right? Um, not, not from a, a, a quality or anything, but just as, as the money flows. And, um, you know, my advice on all these things is just never do anything that would put your business as, at risk of going under. So, um, you know, you're two months in and you're owed 150K. Don't go another month if that, if not getting paid on that would put you under. Never risk your business for anything. Um, and uh, that, would, that would sink the ship. And that's really all you can do. And if your customer, if you lose a customer, losing a customer is not going to sink the ship. Uh, running out of money will sink the ship. And so being disciplined about that, I think is, um, is the best thing that subcontractors can do now, especially in kind of the times we're in, right? The economic and health uh, kind of global events that are going on, like just always be disciplined about making sure that you're, there's nothing that could happen that would sink the ship that you could control, right? That's such a great lesson. And I think no matter what business you're in, you need to understand the finances, you know, how cash flows. And as you mentioned, you know, things might look good for an accounting standpoint and your accountant might say at the end of the year, Hey, you did great. Um, but if you don't have any cash in the bank, it, uh, kind of is a mute point. So more yeah. businesses go out because of cash flow than their balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's, uh, it's not something that anyone should be, like embarrassed about either. I mean, it's another thing that we push. It's like literally top to bottom. Everyone has a problem. Everyone has this problem. Nobody has three months of operating cash, you know, because mo most construction companies, at least subs aren't, you know, don't have outside equity investment. If they do, it's like kind of a one-time startup investment that owns like 20% of the business or something, but they don't have like traditional private equity investment that are driving growth. Um, so it's all self-funded and they have to just take that retained earnings and, and put it back into the business. Yeah. I mean, get yourself a well-qualified CFO that has, even if it's on a part-time basis to help you with cash flow that knows construction, knows the terms you're dealing with and can really help guide you through all phases of your company, right? From yep. mm -hmm. two guys to 200 or yep. beyond you know, having somebody to help you through that as well as your accountant and bookkeepers, but that good financial sage, if you will, <laughs> through these times will be beneficial. Yeah. And it, it, I think a focused uh, effort on accessibility to the different options is important because the fire, you know, construction is the fire drill or it's the definition of fire drill right? You wake up in the morning, superintendent calls you, cusses you out because you're not there early enough. Yeah. Material isn't there on time. So now you're cussing someone out. Uh, you know, someone uh, maybe gets hurt on a job site. You're running out there to figure that out. And you're just kind of constantly reactive and having some discipline to say, okay, this is a known issue. Maybe the number one risk to your business. Um, dedicate some time and resources on accessing the different options. So different options being, you know, from a financing and working capital standpoint, uh, you know, credit card, right? You have a credit card that uh, has some available funds that if you get in a jam, you can use. 
uh, build is an option, obviously, in the kind of stuff that we do. Having different suppliers that uh, can balance out your credit line. So diversifying who you buy with a little bit and making sure that they have access to your financials and bank statements and things that get them more comfortable, right? Like setting up a process that says, hey, I'm going to give you regular reporting of my stuff that gives supplier, gets suppliers more comfortable. Certainly with, with us, Build, right? This is our business too. Gets us more comfortable because it's all about transparency. It's not quality. It's not the quality of financials. It, it, we actually don't care all that much about that. We care about the transparency because we know that something bad will happen and the, and the willingness to be transparent about that is more, way more beneficial than a one-time snapshot of health. Um, the you know lines of credit that you can get from a bank um with you know and there are pluses and minuses to all these options uh we actually just put an article out on on this kind of stuff and there is a progression too a new business can't go out and get a two million dollar line of credit from their bank right so um this also goes back to just like starting with step one maybe it's with build right because we we um, are pretty good about approving uh most contractors uh, then it's like credit card and then you build that credit, right? And then, then go to your bank and start the conversation of this is what I'd like. These are my goals. How do I get there? And they'll tell you, they'll say, this is what you need. And then you can aim for that. And then once you have a diversified access to, it's really access to debt, right? But access to capital, you've put yourself in a really good position, but you have to be proactive about it. You can't get this stuff on a turnaround of a you know, week. You can't go to a bank and say, hey, I need $500,000. It just doesn't work like that. Um, so I, I would also emphasize is that approach of being disciplined and saying, and may, maybe you bring in like a fractional CFO or something that leads that effort for you because uh, it is nuanced and it's relationship building with, with, a, with your bank or finance provider. And um, CFOs are pretty good about you know the, their, their ability to do that. Um, it's certainly money well spent if you, if you, uh, decide to invest in that. Those are all super great points. And I highly, highly recommend for anybody out there. I mean, no matter what your role is within construction, have relationships with your bank, have relationships with probably multiple banks, um, yep. you know, build those lines of credit. I mean, cause this happens I mean, not just subs. I mean, it happens across the board. You know, engineers not getting paid, all subs not getting paid. I mean, it, it happens to everybody and not getting paid for extended periods of time. We're not yeah. talking, you know, two months. We're talking a year in some cases where just there's outstanding debts that need to be collected and having those great relationships with banks or other lenders or even, you know, uh, debt collectors in some cases, um, yeah. knowing, knowing your rights, knowing what you can lean against to get your money is mm -hmm. also, uh, extremely beneficial and just knowing what you need to do when you need to do it to have the right to collect your money. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned liens. I mean, that's something we haven't really hit on. Um, you know, there's so many products available right now to make liens easier. Um, I mean, you have to do it. And, uh, I, I'm kind of shocked because my experience in commercial, I didn't specifically mention this, but I work for a 
commercial waterproofing and concrete repair company that did like really fantastic projects for about five years um, from really small kind of concrete repair stuff to, you know, billion, billion dollar stadiums. So had a, had great exposure uh, to the subcontracting world. Um, but yeah, I was just going to say that um, I'm, uh, I guess I'm just shocked at um, how difficult this can, can be. Um, and sorry, I got, I got totally sidetracked there uh, on what, where I was going with this because I had to mention my experience. You're good. Uh, it's on leans and. Oh yeah. Leans. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so <laughs> we, it was like standard practice, you know, no questions. Right. Uh, and we had invested a tremendous amount of time and effort in, um, in building those relationships and a little lean notice and how quickly that can change. We were quite unapologetic about it. It was just like, no, we're going to protect our rights. As I get more exposure uh, to other subs, they take a different approach where they fear that reaction and they're not unapologetic about it. And I'm like, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> like, it's back to the other point. Don't ever risk anything that could sink the ship. And that's what you're doing by not filing liens properly. Because uh, you're just out. You're out. If you don't handle that the right way, you're out of the payment cycle. If something goes wrong, the you know, worst case kind of scenario, but oftentimes someone will be there to clean it up. They only clean up with a valid lien because they've got to transact on the property, right? And they got to clean up the lien, settle whatever they want to do with it. And if you're not doing that, um, you know, I don't know what else to say. Like, you got to do it. Uh, well, I mean, we do it. We do it for our business. And it's just so simple. There's so many other product, products out there that automate that uh, kind of stuff. Level Set's a, a great example. In fact, we're we're partners with uh, Level Set on a number of initiatives. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you got to do it. <laughs> yeah, a couple great points in there. One is, you know, you got to protect your rights. You can't sink the ship for maybe one client and. I think the most powerful thing is once you understand what your rights are, your kind of steadfastness to the project, and maybe that superintendent might be a little upset with you on filing the lien, but his superiors and everybody else knows why you're doing it. Why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, Protecting they your business. They yeah. understand it. They're, they're like, they, they just get it and you have to do it. And it also sends up the flag of you can only send so many emails and let people know so many times that you haven't been paid. Yeah. Doing a lien means you're serious about getting your money. Yeah. You're, you're serious about your dedication to your employees. Um, you're serious about your commitment to your business. And that just resonates completely downstream of your company. It, you're serious about maintaining your commitment with your suppliers um, and, and other vendors you may use. And uh, that's like, you know, the most important thing to you, to your business. So while it, it can be perceived as like a jerk move, because it, it does affect the whole project, um, you know, they're all in the same boat together, right? All the subs um, need to get paid, all the suppliers need to get paid. Um, so I, yeah, I, my recommendation, it's more than recommendation. To me, it, it is like stable, table stakes of being in construction is to be completely unapologetic about that. 
uh, file, file the proper notices, file the liens. Don't be a jerk about it, but you know, protect your business. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a way to do that, you know, with some grace, right? Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> they yeah, do yeah, this, yeah. You know, they, everyone gets notified and just let you know, we haven't, we haven't been paid. We're, we're filing a lien and even yeah. give them some warning, like, Hey, we're, we're going to do this. Um, yeah. if we, we don't see anything. So just know that, that it's coming and everybody will understand. And ultimately, you know, you need to be treated with respect and getting paid is one of those things. Yeah. So, if, if you're not getting paid, then they're not doing you a service and they're not, they're ultimately just not a good partner uh, for you. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Chris, I'm going to, well, is there anything else you'd like to cover on finance? I think we've gone pretty wide ranging in uh, payments and liens and a lot of uh, ways that you can access capital as a, a subcontractor, but anything else you'd like to cover before we move on to some, I got a few questions for you on just being a founder. Sure. Yeah, no, let's hit it. As, as a founder, how, I guess this question has come around a lot lately and something I've been thinking about, but when somebody says all in, how do you feel about those words and do you take that to heart or how do you, I guess, go about the words all in? Uh, you know, I, I would take that like fairly lightly. Um, just more of my personality is that I'm all in on a lot of things, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean um, being a founder, whether you're an employee and jump in on a, on a business, you got recruited, you know, whatever that is, you're kind of all in on yourself right? You're all on yourself, your integrity, your career, and, uh, and what you're all about. And so there, you know, from my standpoint, there's no other way to be. Um, it intensifies, uh, when you start your own business, whether you started it or not, if you're running a business, um, because you've become all in on a, a broader, uh, group of people. Um, number one, the like family of employees, uh, which I, I call a family because, our, our business is so small still and as a startup and, you know, we're like all in the trenches together. We very much have become a family, especially in the COVID era where it's like, uh, as a central business, a few of us have gone in the office still. So we're, we are like the, you know, the family of six that, that uh, sees each other every day and can't see anyone else. <laughs> so, um, but so your commitment to that group, right. Um, and uh, the different, uh, stakeholders that are really rooting for your business and rooting for you personally. So I think it intensifies there cause you don't want to like let anyone down. Um, but there's really, as from my standpoint, there's never been any other way than, than being all in. Um, Love that. And I really kind of admire in founders when they, you can kind of tell how they view their company and their people. Um, and this goes for any leader, you know, you, said family a lot and how you kind of look at your team and that's that speaks volumes really and how you think about your your people and what they mean to you and you can kind of tell in any leader in any company how they they view those around them by yeah. some of those adjectives that they use as a as a leader as a founder what have been some of the big lessons that 
you've learned in your journey through the multiple companies that you've had? Um, lots, uh, definitely lots, you know, staying humble is, is probably one of the, the top ones. Um, you know, relying on your team. Um, I think the, the biggest lesson that I, I hope would re resonate with the audience is, um, is around personnel. Um, and, uh, you know, I could speak to like finding the great, fantastic people, but it's my, my lesson would be more around how to address, um, those that aren't performing. And so, you know, you talk about things like family and it's like, wow, you know, wait a second, how does firing come into that? You know, how do you, how do you fire your brother or sister, you know? But what it really is, is a commitment to your team that says the number one thing is um, my commitment to the, to the players on this team. And if you're not able to hold up your end of the bargain, then, uh, then you're out. And uh, as a business leader, I'm going to be disciplined about that and um, accountable, I think, right? Um, so if, if you've got folks that are doing everything uh, they need to do and, and others that aren't, it's like that accountability, they, they rely on me as a leader to make sure that that happens and replace them with someone that will. And um, it takes a lot of discipline there, especially when you get these other emotions in your, in your business of a family and becoming friends with people that you work with and you rely on them, you, you still do have to have some separation there. But to me, the, the lesson is that really it's the dedication to the team that this is what I'm going to do to run the business and, and, and make sure that it's successful. Right. Cause that's my commitment to you guys um, as a, as an employer. Yeah. Being dedicated to the whole, not necessarily the individual in some cases, right. That you're dedicated to making the, the entity survive and not yeah. sinking the ship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned discipline a lot. How have you gone about cultivating that discipline in yourself or even in your team? Uh, pro probably a weakness, you know, uh, of mine, even though I mentioned it a lot, you know, it is discipline is tough. Uh, some of it is probably natural. Um, I think, com you know, my level of commitment is very strong. And then that, that like, forces the discipline. It's like, no, I, I committed to this group. I committed to this. And now I'm forcing myself to do something I don't want to do. Um, you know, with the team, it's probably less about instilling discipline, discipline, more about inspiration. It's like, how can I um, be an inspiration? And that's tough, right? I mean, for anyone, why am I any better? Like, how do I do, how do you inspire kind of anyone? Um, but that's that's my focus and i think that's where um any leader really should um prioritize their time is how do you inspire the team where they have their own self-discipline you know my discipline as a drill sergeant to the team is like a you know that's to me that's not really a way to to run a business but if i can inspire them to be disciplined on their own um both in their own like uh, personal development, uh, we'll call it like personal professional development, um, which we, we get the benefit of as a business, but then it, on to the next career, right? They get the benefit of it. Um, I think that's, uh, that's where I would probably focus most of my time. 
and I, I don't know that I'm good at any of that stuff, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're here for. And that's how we, where we try to learn and grow up, grow, grow from. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, as long as you have an awareness, you know, where to put that attention and, uh, and kind of move to that, really that next spot. Well, Chris, where can everybody find you? And then we'll do some closing thoughts. Yeah. So, um, a website really is probably the best uh, spot. Uh, it's uh, www.buildbilld.com. Um, and so for subcontractors that are interested in um, uh, learning more about the product or enrolling with us, super easy to do that on the website. Same with suppliers. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about suppliers today, but um, we have a lot of um, partner suppliers that want to use our product as a tool with their customer. So um, they can get information there too, or if you just kind of generally want to learn more about us. Uh, and then also a lot of our content is there too, and articles about things like we talked about today, liens and contracts and stuff like that. So websites, definitely the, uh, the best place to go there. Awesome. And Chris, any other closing thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, no, I mean, I think, first of all, thank you again for having me on. Um, we, we didn't talk a lot about the stuff going on with COVID, but, you know, I guess final thoughts would be, you know, hang in there. Um, I'm saying that to myself too, because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been a little bit challenging for us too. Uh, hang in there. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, good days are ahead. Uh, and, um, you know, just keep that commitment to your business and, and your team. And, uh, you know, that's the best thing you can do as a business leader. Awesome guys. We've covered a ton of ground today. Chris has been an awesome guest. We've covered a wide range of finances and really this is super beneficial. The biggest thing that you can probably take away is don't sink the ship. Make sure that you protect yourself and find ways to do that. Be diversified in your assets. Find somebody to help you do that, whether it's a CFO or just a bank to help guide you through the process. But whatever you do, do not sink the ship. Guys, this has been a wonderful episode and thank you for listening. Until next time.